Good morning. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you all to the Houghton Wesleyan Church as we come together as God's people. Please stand and join us as we begin our service of worship by singing his praises together.
Father, we thank you for what you are doing in us. And we gather today to give you thanks, to declare your greatness, and to open our hearts to you. Thank you for being present with us today. And thank you for the work that you are doing in every one of us as we worship. Be glorified. We pray this through Christ. Amen. So great to see you here this morning. Let me invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others here here in worship today. So uh, as we uh, gather today, I want to uh, welcome those of you who uh, may be guests with us this morning. Especially want to welcome the Genesee Rapids baseball team. It's great to have you guys, some of you back, some of you new. Uh, it's good to have you here. There we go. And I hope you have a great, great season. We look forward to watching you play and following you uh, throughout this uh, summer as you, uh, as you play here and other places. Uh, tonight at 5 o'clock... We invite you to back to the community room. We're going to be having an ice cream social. It's just a time, uh, first of all, to have ice cream. So, I mean, enough said, right? Uh, but we're also going to be uh, just a time to fellowship, connect with each other. Uh, we're also going to have a little bit of time to begin thinking about Valley Preschool. It's the fifth, beginning of the 50th year of our preschool here. And so there'll be a few things about that as well. But I hope you'll join us at 5 tonight. And then next Sunday, you'll notice that... Uh, after the worship services, we're hosting a church-wide potluck, and love to have you be a part of that, and you can see some information in the bulletin about that. We have the opportunity now to give back to God from all the ways in which he's blessed us, and we'll invite the ushers to come forward and assist us in our giving today. Okay. 
Thank you for the privilege of coming before your throne and knowing that when we pray, you hear us and that you are at work in ways beyond us. Father, this morning as we as we pray together, we want to give you thanks for the work that you are doing in our lives and in the lives of many connected to us. We thank you for the healing work that you have done in Bob Brown. Ben King, Brian Orbacher. Thank you for for the way that you have worked in them and healed them, even as we have been praying for them. And we pray that you will continue to continue your healing work in them. We thank you, Father, for your grace upon us and the needs that we bring with us today. We thank you for being peace in our anxiety, for being confidence in our uncertainty, for being hope in our despair, for being comfort in our grief, for being healing in our pain, for being restoration in our brokenness, for being life in every moment of our existence. We thank you for your work in us. We do continue to pray for all who are struggling with a variety of issues today. And we think especially of those wrestling with health concerns. We pray for Dan Gurley, Gus Princell, for Louise Princell, Florence Tuber, for Rosalind Danner and Isabella Doherty, for Tim Nichols, Nancy Cole, for Peter Lingenfelter and Cheryl O'Brien, for Doris Sepian and Isla Shea and Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, for Mike Raybuck, Bev Rett, Emily Cricklar, and others in our minds and hearts, we pray for their healing. Father, we, we thank you for your work in our church, and we thank you for your work in the churches around us. Today, we pray for the Belmont United Methodist Church and Pastor Gleason. We pray that you will bless this congregation of believers, that as they gather today and each week, 
they would know your presence and that they would be your people to each other, to their community and beyond. Father, we thank you for what we see of you at work in our country and in our world as people continue to recover from disasters and tragedies and as they continue to to pop up and come. We ask for your grace in each circumstance. We pray for our world. We pray for people who, who live in places of war and violence, that you would bring peace. We pray, Father, for refugees who are seeking uh, safety and a place they can call home. We ask that you would provide that for them. We pray, Father, for, for the work of your church around the world. We pray for David and Heidi Heisinger as they prepare to go to Cameroon, back to Cameroon, and, and to share with the graduating class there at the Rainforest International School where they spent a number of years. We ask that, that you will bless them and that you will bless their ministry and the students there. We pray, Father, for the, the, the Christians in the church in Colombia. They have been through years of civil war and unrest the possibility of peace and stability. Lord, we ask that you would help the church to be a catalyst for this peace. We pray that you would give courage and wisdom for all of the church leaders in this land. And may their witness bear fruit through your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your grace upon each of us. Thank you for all the ways in which you bless our lives. We continue to declare how much we need you and give you thanks for your presence with us each moment. We offer this prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. I'll be reading Psalm 133. Hear the word of the Lord. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand as we sing together. Oh God, help us to receive. 
One of the most fascinating things that Jesus says in the Gospels comes from the 10th chapter of John's Gospel. In the 10th chapter, Jesus is talking about sheep and shepherds. And he's talking about the difference between who he is as the shepherd of his sheep and other shepherds and how they treat the sheep. And when you come to verse 10, he talks about how these false shepherds come to steal and kill and destroy. And then Jesus adds this. He says, but my purpose is to come and to give abundant, satisfying life. Now, what fascinates me about what Jesus says there in John 10 is that I think it's one of the greatest struggles of our lives to believe that what Jesus says is true. I think one of the greatest struggles of our lives is to believe that the purpose of Jesus' coming is to give us a full, satisfying, abundant life. We wrestle with that all of our days because God doesn't do what we want him to do. God seems to be ignoring us. God seems to have forgotten us. And we spend so much of our lives fighting with God and trying to believe that that promise really is true. That God's intent for creating us is abundant, fulfilled, satisfying, rich life. And when we read through the scriptures, we find God continually saying to us, that's my purpose for creating you. That's my desire for you. That's what I want for you. And we find that God accomplishes that in a whole variety of ways. And that brings us to Psalm 133. Because when you get to this psalm, the writer of the psalm says, How good and pleasant, how wonderful it is when God's people live together in unity. And when you get to the end of it, he says, it is here, it is in this spirit of unity that we find the rich blessings of God. And I think we wrestle to connect unity and the blessings of God. This is a song of ascents, which means it's one of the songs that the, that the Israelites, the pilgrims, sing on their way to worship. Often it's the song, kind of song they sing on their way to some of the great big festivals that they celebrate. And so the question that's been going through my mind is, as they are making their way to Jerusalem, as they're walking and, and singing together, why would they sing about unity? What is it about unity that they think would be so wonderful and so great? I think that's a a struggle for us. Because we tend to think of unity not as essential, not as something that's going to bring us the blessings of God, but quite frankly as something nice, but often peripheral. There are so many other things that are more important. And now if if we experience unity, well, that's great, that's awesome. But I don't think we see it as something that's going to bring to us the blessing of God that we are going to think of as this wonderful, awesome experience of God. And yet that's what Psalm 133 is telling us. 
Now, the psalm uses some metaphors that, quite frankly, probably don't make a lot of sense to us. If you look beginning at verse 2, the writer says, For harmony, and this is the New Living Translation, harmony or unity is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, if you're like me, you're reading that and you're thinking, okay, I don't get what's so wonderful and awesome about oil being poured on a man's head and running down his beard. Right? I mean, that... We don't see that happen very often, right? It just doesn't, doesn't occur too much. It goes back to the book of Exodus. God, as God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. He sets the, the people of the family of Aaron, Moses' brother, he sets them apart to be the priests. And when everything is ready, and the temple, the tabernacle has been completed, and God is consecrating Aaron and his sons as the priests... He tells Moses to take anointing oil, this special oil that they have created, this fragrant oil, and pour it over Aaron's head. Now, the reason he does that is a couple of things. One is, oil in the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. When a new king is, being, is, is called out, in the early days, Saul and David particularly... The prophet Samuel comes and pours oil over their head to say, The Holy Spirit is on you. You're God's chosen one. When you come to the New Testament, the book of James, you find that James saying that if someone is sick, anoint them with oil. It's not magic, but it is simply the, a presence of, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit is here and at work. Oil is representing the Holy Spirit. And so they pour the oil on Aaron to say, this is, not, this is not something that human beings are doing. This is something God is doing to his Holy Spirit. But you also have to understand that he's anointing him as a priest. And the priest is the person that stands between God and the people. The priest represents the people to God and represents God to the people. The priest has this special place in the worship of the people of Israel. And what's fascinating to me is that Israel doesn't initiate this, this calling of the priest. God does. God not only calls Israel out of Egypt, but he says, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to put a, put a priest in the middle of your, of your lives as a symbol, as a reminder, as a presence that I am with you that I love you, I care for you, that you can come to me with all of your burdens and concerns. You come and sacrifice, and the priest will help you with that and know that I receive those things with joy and thanksgiving. And the priest will tell you the things that I want you to hear because I want to have relationship with you. And God initiates that. And it's what brings presence, it's what brings the, makes the people of Israel, the people of God, that he is with them. And they find great joy in knowing that this God who created them and loves them wants to have relationship with them. And the priest symbolizes that. And so the writer of the psalm says, you know how wonderful unity among God's people is? It's like this oil being poured on Aaron's head that represents the presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God and all of the glory and the goodness and the love and the grace of God to us as his people. But I love the imagery here. It's not just a little trickle on his head. It's 
They just keep pouring and pouring and pouring. You can, see, you can imagine the scene, right? You're pouring this oil on his head, and he's got this huge beard. And as it pours over his head and just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring, it just is pouring down his beard. It's dripping off his beard onto his robes, and there's this big puddle of oil on the floor all around him. And the writer of the psalm is trying to help us understand that when God gives blessing, it's abundant. God's blessings don't trickle out to us. They're abundant to us, particularly the Holy Spirit. And the writer of the psalm says, that's what unity among God's people is. It's this glorious sense of the presence of God's abundant spirit poured out upon us. No wonder, he says, it's wonderful and good and joyous and it's a blessing. The other metaphor here is from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the tallest peak in Palestine. Nine, ten thousand feet high. It's always snow-capped. And the, and the dew of Hermon, the water of Hermon, flows down and actually, it actually flows down into the Jordan River. It's what makes the, gives the Jordan River its existence. And the Jordan River is what gives the whole land of Israel and the desert its existence. And so we talk about the dew of Hermon falling down on Zion. What he's really saying is it's, it's life-giving. And God has provided life for his people. Not just spiritual life, but actually life, the way that we need to exist in this world as human beings. And God has provided this life. And the writer of the psalm says, this is how wonderful and joyous and awesome unity is. It is the life-giving grace of God to our existence. And I think, quite frankly... I'm not sure we see unity and harmony among God's people quite like that. But the psalmist does. Now, it's interesting to me that these two metaphors that the psalmist uses for unity are actually two, two things that don't mix. Isn't that ironic? Oil and water, they don't mix. You know, you can see in this little cup, oil and water. If you've ever seen, get a little grease or some oil on your driveway and it rains, what happens? The water beads up on it. You, you try to stir that, that um, measuring cup with the oil and water, it will look like it's mixed for a few seconds, but it separates very quickly. I find it ironic that that's the met- two metaphors that the writer uses. But I think there is something in that. Tim Tennant says that w- w- in his mind, when he reads that and he thinks about those two metaphors, it reminds us that the church is about diversity. And that unity in the church is not sameness. It is bringing together people of diversity into a unity of spirit. Because unity in the church is not uniformity. We all think at the exact same way. And it's not unanimity that we all have to see every little petty detail exactly the same. It is the unity of our spirits. It's relational unity. It's coming together. And it's taking all the different ways, all the ways in which we are different and uniting us in Christ. 
is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says we're like a body. And we're not all ears and we're not all eyes and we're not all feet and we're not all hearts. We are all each of these different things and that's what makes the body the body. I love John's description in Revelation chapter 7. When he talks about, he says, after this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, and they were giving worship to God. How does John know they come from every tribe and people and language and nation? Because they're different. And when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, when Jesus ushers in his kingdom, we don't all become clones. All of our diversity is unified in Christ. If we're all to be all the same, that's not unity. That's that's a cult group. You know, in a cult group, there is no difference of opinion, no difference of thought. It's everybody thinking exactly the same. But that's not the church. C.S. Lewis talks about how the, this kind of unity is not an orchestra playing the same note. But it's all the different various elements of the orchestra playing together. I mean, why do we pay money to go hear a symphony? It's not because all the instruments are playing the exact same note all the way through the songs. I don't think anybody would pay money to hear that. We go to hear that because you have all the different instruments playing all their different notes. But they play them all at the same time, at the same pace, in the same place, under the direction of the same conductor. And that's what makes the beautiful sound. That's what makes the hair on the back of our necks stand up. That's what, that's what stirs us inside to hear those harmonies. I love the way the New Living Translation translates this passage. Instead of using the word unity, it uses the word harmony. And I like that. When I was in high school, I, was in, I sang in the church choir. And, and I was just starting to, to begin to, 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 to sing in public a little bit. And... and um, having some success with that. And so I'm singing in church choir and I'm just, you know, singing as loud as I can sing. And a, the youth, a youth pastor was standing next to me in the choir and one day at rehearsal he turned to me and he said, you know, Wes, when you sing in the choir, the object's not to sing as loud as you can. The object is to blend in with everybody else. And I was a little bit offended at first that he would say that to me, but, but I began to think about that. And he said to me, what you need to try to do is try to match your voice to the voices around you. Think about the volume level of everybody else. Think about the tone of everyone else and and try to match what they're doing. And when we do that, when we all do that together, then we make this beautiful harmony and the sound. And he was right. And so often, what we want to do is sing solos. And God's called us to sing in the harmony of the choir. And to make that a priority for us. That's hard. It's hard to do that. Because the minute we say, I'm going to tone myself down in order to balance with everyone else, we're giving up some of our freedoms. And we like to give up our freedoms. 
We want to hang on to our freedoms. I don't want to be accountable to somebody else. I don't want to think about what other people are doing. I just want to think about what I'm doing. It's just me and Jesus. But the scriptures keep telling us again and again and again, as important as me and Jesus is, we only understand me and Jesus in the context of you and me. That's how we decipher you, me, and Jesus. How we treat each other. How we're living with each other. And you'll notice that the, the psalmist says in verse 1 that how it's good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You've got to live together to have unity. It's no miracle for people to live in unity if they never see each other and never interact with each other. That's, that's really not unity. The struggle of unity is that is in community. That we are together. We're connected to each other. And out of that connection, we're thinking about each other. And we're connecting with each other. And that's the struggle. That's the hard part of it. Because all of us want to live our lives saying, yeah, but what about my rights? What about what I want to do? What about, I, what, I, what about my opinion? What about my desires? But if our goal is unity in Christ, we are continually saying, what about your desires? What about our desires? And instead of thinking and focusing on ourselves, we're thinking and focusing on the bigger picture of the church. Of what it means to live life together. Sometimes we talk about, you know, the, well, when we disagree with each other, we say, well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. And I have a friend who says to me, I, I don't think that's a biblical mindset. And it took me a little while to think through that, but I think he's right. Because when you talk about agree to disagree, that means I'm, what we're really saying is I'm right, you're wrong, and someday you'll figure that out. What we're saying is we agree to disagree means if, we were, if I work hard enough, I can convince you that I'm right and you're wrong and I'll change you. The mindset of unity in the church is not agree to disagree. It is humbly listening and learning and submitting to each other. So often in disagreements, all we're trying to do is to prove we're right. When all the while, maybe the Holy Spirit has brought this person to us to show us that there are things we need to learn. Because none of us have a corner on the truth. None of us have discovered it all. We need to keep learning. We struggle with that because we're always thinking, yeah, but I'm not sure I trust that person's opinion. I'm not sure I trust what they're thinking about. I've figured this all out. I have arrived. I'm done. I don't need to learn anything more. Nothing could be more hazardous to our walk with Jesus than thinking we've arrived and we figured it all out. None of us have. The greatest saints in history are people who have said, there's a lot of things I've figured out, but there's a whole lot of things I haven't. And they live with a humble, open spirit. And I think that's what the call to unity is about. It's having this humble, open spirit. It's saying, I know even if we disagree about some things, there's so much that God can teach me through you. And I want to hear it. I want to understand. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to develop. 
It's a way of loving each other, listening to each other, submitting to each other. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes to the church there about relationships. And he talks, about, he talks about the relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children, fathers and children, masters and slaves. And before he begins that discussion, he says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he proceeds to say to husbands and wives, submit to each other. To fathers and children, submit to each other. To masters and slaves, submit to each other. Now, for in that culture particularly, for wives and children and slaves, submitting isn't something they have to learn to do. It's ingrained in them. It's what the culture demands. But for husbands and fathers and masters, to submit to others is the call of the gospel that is not culturally conditioned. And Paul says, if we're going to be the church, you have to submit to each other. And it always starts with the most powerful to the least powerful. To the one who has the most, to the one who has the least. That's where the submission always begins. And God is calling us as the church to be people who submit to each other. It's how we prove our love for each other. That's what creates unity. One of the things that that struck me this week as I was thinking about verse 1 is that when he says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity, for a long time all I was thinking about how good and pleasant it is for us when God's people live in unity. And then it struck me, you know what? I think that's just a general statement. How good and pleasant it is for the world when God's people live in unity. It's just generally good and pleasant when God's people get along. If we think, if we want the world and the culture to live in unity, why would they think that's important? Why would they, why would they do that if they don't see it in the church? It has to start with us. If we can't live in unity, how in the world will we ever expect anybody else to live in unity? It starts with us. And out of our commitment to each other, out of our unity in Christ, we begin to change. And I think that's part of what Jesus means when he says, here's how people are going to know you're my followers. You love each other. That's the witness. You love each other. You submit to each other. You listen to each other. You treat each other with respect and kindness and gentleness and patience. And whenever the people see that they begin to take notice and say, maybe we ought to think about that. I'd like to know more about that. Instead of our motto being of the church through the history being divide and conquer, maybe our motto should be, how can we unite in Jesus? When you come to 1 Corinthians, the beginning chapter, Paul right away after his, after his greeting, addresses the disunity in the church. He says to them, look, I, I've heard that there are people there saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. This is nuts. Why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you divided? Is Jesus divided? No. Why are you so divided? And he chastises them and he admonishes them. And then he comes to verse 18 and he says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed to destruction. 
But we are being saved. No, it's the very power of God. And for a long time, I've disconnected what he said about unity, disunity, and what he says here in verse 18, the foolishness of the cross. And it just hit me recently that those things are not disconnected. They are intimately connected. And I think what Paul is saying is that the reason you are you're divided to each other is because when you look at the cross, you think it's foolishness. Because the cross is about surrender and sacrifice and giving up our rights and about love. It's about Jesus. And the reason you're fighting with each other, he says, is because when you look at the cross, that doesn't look like the way you ought to live. That looks like complete foolishness. And the problem is, Paul says, foolishness is going to lead you to destruction. But embracing the cross... Embracing what feels like foolishness, what feels like losing, is actually leading us to this abundant blessing of Jesus. I think the greatest evidence for me of this call to unity is everything we read about what life is going to be like in the new heaven and the new earth. In the new heaven and new earth, there's not going to be divisions. No denominations in the new heaven and the new earth. No divisiveness. We will be one as Jesus prays to his Father in John 17. We will be one. And we will not be united because we have no choice about it. We'll be united because that's all we will want. Because to be united is to want Jesus more than anything else. It is all about Jesus. It's all about yearning for Jesus. It's about putting Jesus in the center and wanting the spirit of Jesus to be our spirit. And the day is coming when we will be completely absorbed in wanting, yearning for Jesus. And there will be unity. And if that's what the day is going to be like then, shouldn't that be our yearning and our desire as we live as God's people now. That's really what this table is about. I suspect that, that one of the greatest disappointments of God, one of, the greatest, one of the things that grieves God's heart more than anything, is how this table, through the centuries, has become an, a place of divisiveness rather than unity. But God is calling us to this table together. Because this is a table, it's not about deserving and the undeserving. Because truth of the matter, this is a table where all of us are undeserving. This is a table of grace. And until we recognize that our lives are only something because of God's grace, we'll always wrestle with valuing unity the way God does. But when we begin to understand that this table is an invitation to grace because all of us desperately need grace. All of us are here because of God's grace. All of us are anything because of God's grace. And when we begin to understand that and embrace that, then we begin to see 
that everybody else is a recipient of grace. And at this table, the ground is level. It's just coming to Jesus. This psalm really doesn't tell us how to be unified. It just says, it is the most blessed thing you can experience. When God's people are so enamored with Jesus that they live in unity together. Do we believe that? Do we embrace it? Do we pray for God to help us see it and live it? Father, thank you so much for your grace to us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for all the ways in which you are at work in us. Forgive us for our divisiveness and lead us to the truth. Lead us to the spirit of Christ in our unity with each other. Father, pour out your blessing upon the bread and the cup. Let them be food for our souls, grace for our needy, weary lives. And we will give you honor and praise through Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We are receiving communion this morning by the mode of intinction, just means to dip in. As you're released by rows, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar rail is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you, we have trays of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seats. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you'd like those, just let me know as you come forward. I always like to mention this, but particularly today, we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. You don't have to be a member of this church. Maybe it's the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with a heart, a desire for Jesus, and a desire to love him and to love others, come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father.
Please stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.